The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of March 25th, 2019. On this week's show, we'll talk about Duke's victory over UCF in the greatest battle of our age, Zion versus Taco. We'll then discuss the kerfuffle over Michigan State coach Tom Izzo yelling at his players. And finally, announcer Ian Eagle will join us to explain how to call a March Madness game winner. Here with me in our Washington, D.C. studio is my co-host, Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. What does that mean? Nothing. That means hello, Josh. <laughs> hello, Stefan. Uh, this Izzo thing is going to it's going to be a thing, isn't it, for you? Oh, yeah. I can predict that the <laughs> Izzo thing is going to be a conversation. All right, I'm going to wind Stefan up and, and let him go in mere moments. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. 16 teams remain in the NCAA men's basketball tournament. Cinderella not doing much dancing. All of the one, two, and three seeds are alive, plus two four seeds, a five, and just one lone double-digit 12th-seeded Oregon. One of the ones, though, came this close to losing on Sunday. That, of course, was Duke, which survived only after a putback by Central Florida's Aubrey Dawkins rolled around the rim and then off of the rim as time expired and the Blue Devils hung on for a crazy 77-76 to victory. Josh, that game had it all. The great Zion Williamson, as you mentioned, scored 32 points, including a game-saving basket when Duke trailed 76-73 in the waning seconds. Central Florida's 7'6 Taco Fall, originally from Senegal, who, as Charlie Pierce pointed out in Sports Illustrated, is one of the 60 tallest humans in history. He scored 15 points and was an entertaining menace all evening. Tons of lead changes, the makings of one of the greatest upsets ever. And when it was done, some very sincere emotional moments between Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski and his former player and assistant coach Johnny Dawkins, who is now the head coach at Central Florida. Josh, for all of Krzyzewski's historical sanctimony and his team's general dislikability, there are reasons to be softening on Duke. I mean, one of them is that we want to keep watching Zion play. The other is that this team doesn't have a signature player to hate. Um, but also, that was really genuine, heartwarming stuff after the game. And the way that Shashevsky and Dawkins handled it seemed really, like, honest and genuine and like a great sports kind of moment. I was thinking during the game, what if there was a team made up entirely of Duke children? Because the spectacle of seeing Aubrey Dawkins um, just go after the uh, team that his father had played for and that his father had coached at. And that, that he grew up around in Durham. I mean, he was a kid when his father for 10 years was an assistant at Duke. 
the Shashevsky Dawkins, Johnny Dawkins stuff was okay, but the Aubrey Dawkins performance in that game was the thing that really struck me as a guy kind of in the most classic sense, just like coming through in the biggest game of his life in the clutch. And then also in the most classic sense, having the game on his fingertips, someone who certainly didn't deserve to have his memory of that game be failure, have the ball just bounce right off the rim at the end. It sort of felt like there was no way that Duke was going to lose cosmically. And then it turned out that that was the case. But like looking back at the game, there are just so many different points where it could have gone the other way. And what you didn't mention is that, um, you know, when Zion made that shot at the end, he went right at Taco. Taco Fall. And it had been anticipated this matchup. And, and so often when it's like a one-on-one matchup in a five-on-five game, it doesn't really manifest. But in this game, they went at each other a bunch of times, and Taco Fall blocked Zion Williamson a bunch of times. And and at this moment, Zion went into his chest, got the uh, the basket, fouled out Taco, and then when Zion missed the free throw at the end, R.J. Barrett got the putback in part because he pushed off, but also in part because Taco Fall wasn't in the game. I'm not sure he pushed off to get the the rebound, and so. The Zion versus Taco thing ended up being decisive. And it's it's also just so fascinating to watch Taco Fall play basketball just because Because he's really not very good yet. He's so much better honest. than he's he so was. He's so much better than he was, but he's still not a complete basketball player who can take over a game, even though he's seven foot six and he's not Minute Bowl seven foot six. He's 310 pounds. He is big. He is built well. Um, he's just not quick. He doesn't have great footwork yet. And he is not a full court player. Well, to be clear, again, I, I watched him play a couple of years ago and he was not good. Right. And he's good now. Yeah. Um, and compared to other seven foot six players, he is fast. He gets up and down the court. Yep. He did not look out of place in this game. And it's sort of like playing John Isner in tennis. It's just a different sport mm-hmm. when he's on the court. And there are certain things where, as a defense in particular, and also actually when you're on offense, there are just certain things that you can't do and that you can't stop, whereas it feels like normally – when you're playing basketball and, you know, sure, a lot of times you do everything right and a guy makes a, a crazy shot, but you just can't play defense against this guy who can dunk without jumping. Right. The signature and, moment of that was in the previous game at the end when UCF had an inbounds plat play um, and Taco had two guys on him and he was sort of pointing down at their heads, indicating that throw me the ball up here. There is sort of a video game aspect to it, at least as a viewer, where it seems like the challenge that you're facing when you play against this guy, it's like going up against a boss in a game. Like, it, it feels less like a sport. Like, there are certain maneuvers that you have to do to get a, around him, and you have to, like, trick him. And, like, R.J. Barrett and Zion Williamson all year have been able to just go to the basket and that's been Duke's game. Like Duke can't shoot from the outside. They're, you know, the worst 
major conference team in all of basketball at shooting threes, although they shot them better in this game. And seeing them have to surmount that challenge was, for me, part of the reason why this was a classic game. Right, and why that last sequence was so cool. Zion just taking it there and 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 getting the ball in and drawing the foul. And it was a it was a crazy sequence. And it's also the kind of game that it invites you to think in cliches, I feel like, just because of how Mm -hmm. many things felt kind of narratively significant and kind of scripted in a sense. And this is the first game in Zion Williamson's nascent basketball career that feels legacy defining in the like dumb sports talker sense of the word and again as a fan watching this it felt really cool to see this guy who you know you don't know because he could get hurt but you think is going to be an all-time legend of this sport play so well and play so hard and again, in the cliched but accurate sense of the word, will his team to victory. Like, it felt important, this game. Yeah, and I would add— And this is why it was good for Zion Williamson to come back. that's exactly where I was going to go. And I know I've been anti-Zion Williamson playing in college because I think, rationally, he shouldn't play in college. It doesn't make sense for this guy to be playing in college from a purely economic, common sense. The NCAA is fucked— for not compensating its best athletes with actual money way. Um, But what you saw in this game was someone who is, yes, potentially going to be this legacy basketball player. But at the same time, it was you could see like someone who needed to be the guy in a really important game. He still seems really young when he talks to the media after the games. I mean, he really seems like someone who has been told what to say because he's been, you know, he's been taught what to say because people have been following him since he was a teenager. But at the same time, you just saw naivete when he speaks and like what you saw on the court and the way he responded was like, holy shit, this is like a young person rising to the occasion and his ability when he had to. And he was quoted after the game um, saying about what Krzyzewski said to him when they were down four with, with a couple of minutes to go. Yeah. 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 It was it was actually 74-70 and Central Florida missed an alley-oop dunk yeah. that would have given them a six-point lead. And I think there was a timeout shortly after that. And Zion said – after the game, when Shashevsky looks at you and tells you that you're made for this moment, it's like the most confidence you can be given. So this is someone who still needs that. I mean, we all need that, right, in important moments. But this is someone who his coach recognized how to elevate him even more at a, at a, if this is all accurate, which I have no reason to doubt that what Zion Williamson was saying isn't sincere, but that who sort of absorbed that and then went out and did it. Yeah, and back to sort of who, after a game like this, gets to be remembered for their success and who gets to be remembered for their failure. After that missed alley-oop by Central Florida at 74-70, to 70, uh, Trey Jones misses the three. Javon Delorier gets 
the rebound kicks it out and Cam Reddish makes a three for Duke. So that rebound is hugely important for how this game ends up. Then Duke goes down by three after a couple free throws and Zion misses a three-pointer with 33 seconds to go. Javon Delorier gets an offensive rebound again and that's when Zion makes the layup, gets the foul on Taco Fall. Then Zion misses the free throw and uh, in the best possible way off the front of the rim. Yeah, and so RJ Barrett gets gets the rebound. Yeah. So this is a team sport. Um, there's a very, very clear pathway here for Zion Williamson to have failed in the clutch in this game, and his teammates ensured that that isn't what would have happened. And Aubrey Dawkins, who I can't actually go through this play-by-play and find anything that he did wrong <laughs> in this game at all um, that would have, uh, you know, could have changed the outcome except for that final moment where the ball didn't go in. We're going to segue to talk about Tom Izzo in a minute. And to do that, Josh, why don't we listen to Johnny Dawkins in the locker room with his team? Because this, I like was tearing up when I, when I heard this. Really proud what you did this year, not just tonight, mm-hmm. you did this year representing you know, our program, representing our university. Couldn't be more proud of how you handled yourself on and off the court. And you guys have been terrific. And, and look, man, we always said it's going in two ways when you invest like we invest. We're going to end, man, celebrating. We're going to end crying. We're going to end in tears. We end in tears. We end in tears. Damn. I mean, this is sort of like really good coaching on both ends. I mean, what I said earlier in quoting what Zion said about Krzyzewski, the way Krzyzewski comported himself after the game, both in the immediate on-court interview and then later in front of the, the, the gathered media, and then Johnny Dawkins talking to his players. This was great. And I think for all that we've said that's negative about Krzyzewski over the years, the thing that he's always been really good on and I, th- I think we should be clear, it's not just about the fact. He's, he's not just saying nice and respectful things because Johnny Dawkins used to be his, his player and they're you know really close. I think he's always been good about giving credit mm-hmm. to the other team uh, and acknowledging when his team has been lucky uh, to, to win a game. There uh, have been a bunch of moments like that throughout his, uh, his tenure. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, Stefan, in the first round of the NCAA tournament, Michigan State head coach Tom Izzo got mad at one of his players. Uh, Michigan State was playing number 15 seed Bradley. They were expected to win the game handily, and it was a lot closer than expected. There was a timeout, uh, and Izzo got very, very visibly heated. Uh, Why don't you explain what happened? 
Yeah, he wasn't just yelling at him, and he went onto the court. His face was red. He was jabbing his left finger, left finger at him. His right fist was clenched. He was screaming, and then as they moved back to the bench, he kept screaming. He had to be restrained by two other players um, on Michigan State. And then after the game, he was asked about it. So why don't we listen, Josh, to uh, to some of what transpired in the press conference. This is the first question, and it was from uh, Pat Borzi of the New York Times, just asking why he went after Henry. You think there was one thing that would make me that angry? You don't know me very well. Um, there was a bunch of things, you know, and, he, you know, hey, he's playing a lot of minutes too. He's tired too. But when you're a freshman now at this time of year, you don't make um, mental mistakes on things that, and we're telling a guy which way he goes or not running back or, you know, there were some things Aaron didn't do a very good job of. And then, and yet, you know what? Like I like happened, I did get after him and he did respond and he did make a couple big buckets and he did make some big free throws. But that's not good enough. This is one and done time, you know? The my bads are out the window. If they're my bads because that team played better or that guy played better, if it's my bad because I decided to jog back instead of sprint back, then it is your bad, and you're going to hear about it. So that's what it was. All right, so after that, you could sort of hear Izzo getting more and more frustrated and answering that question. He felt, I think, very clearly that he didn't feel like he should be questioned there. And then the money quote came a little bit after that. I get a kick out of you guys. Get after somebody because you're trying to hold them accountable. I don't know what kind of business you're in, but... I tell you what, if I was the head of a newspaper and you didn't do your job, you'd be held accountable. That's the way it is. Business. Right. It's, it's a, he's acknowledging that college sports is a business and that his players are employees. Nice. Um, but to me, it was the follow-up exchange. Oh, there's more. There's more. That was the most revealing about what Izzo felt, how Izzo felt about being questioned. So, Tom, I think you guys... Or minus six in rebounding at halftime. Ended up, I think you were plus 15 in the second half in rebounding. How did you make that happen? How did they get, how did, uh, how, which players allowed that to happen for you? I imagine some challenging went on. No, no, no. We went in the halftime. We had a love fest. We all kind of gathered around. We hugged each other and said, listen, it's okay, guys, that we, we got out rebounded by a smaller team. Uh, you know, it's okay, but if we could find a way to do a little better job, it would probably help us win. That's what we did, to be honest with you. All right, Josh, this is what really pisses me off because you can hear the contempt here and you need to watch it because he really wants to tell everyone to fuck off and you can hear him getting more frustrated. But of course, this is total bullshit what he is saying. He's implying that there's only two ways to coach. One is you're not allowed to criticize anybody. It's a love fest. I'm not allowed to tell them that they did anything wrong. And the other is to behave like a fucking lunatic on national television and point a jab a finger and be red in the face and had to be restrained by these 20-something players on your team. What did you make of the fact that um, so many of Izzo's former players chimed in to defend him? Guys like Draymond Green, guys like Miles mm-hmm. Bridges, who were in the NBA. Miles Bridges said, stop being soft. Gary Harris, who plays for the Nuggets, said, so coaches can't yell at players now. These are guys who say that both in this context and in the and in the past, credit Izzo with 
developing them on the court and off the court and truly love the dude. Right. Sure. Absolutely. That doesn't surprise me at all. It's possible to coach players and for to get them to love you and to be effective and to be stern and to be decisive and honest and let people know when they make mistakes without screaming and jabbing fingers and being this close to losing it emotionally. Let's not forget what the power balance is here. This is a 64-year-old guy who makes more than $4 million a year coaching predominantly African-American kids in their early 20s, late teens and early 20s, who were there by his graces, right? You know, some people said Aaron Henry defended Izzo after the game, too. What's he going to say? He's going to go on social media and rip the coach and say, you know, I really don't like being yelled at. We're never going to get rid of athletes and people, fans, who believe that if a coach screams a lot, that's a good way to coach. Because it's effective. Yeah, it can be effective, but it's not the only way to coach. I don't see Brad Stevens doing that. I don't see Jay Wright doing that. And I don't think we should, like, ignore the context here either. Age, race, university. Yeah, and Michigan State is a funny place, right? Um, because Izzo has had so much success there as a coach, this institu- this kind of benighted institution that has had failures of leadership, has had interim leadership with, you know, the Larry Nasser case. There was no oversight there. There have been questions about the handling of um, sexual assault allegations in the basketball program and in the football program, that if you wanted to identify a person um, in college sports who has not been and is not going to be held accountable, it's Tom Izzo. Not necessarily, I'm not saying that to imply that Izzo is the world's most horrible person and that he's done the world's most horrible things. I'm just saying that for a guy who feels like it is the most important thing for people to be held accountable for their actions, aka not running hard, that he's somebody who cannot really speak to that from personal experience. Well, he doesn't want to be held accountable, as he said in that press conference. Very very defensive. Very defensive. I also found it interesting and kind of understandable in some sense that the folks who are the most familiar with this program, the beat writers, the fans of Michigan State, are surprised that this conversation is happening because Izzo acts like this all the time. This is what he does, if not in every game, he does it often. And the thing that I think it's hard for people to understand who are so close to a situation is that just because a thing has happened before and people haven't commented on it, that doesn't mean it's not worth talking about now because it was broadcast prominently during a prominent event and was talked about in a press conference after the game. That's a perfectly valid reason to have a conversation about is this appropriate behavior and to talk more broadly about um, you know, demeanor of coaches and how they treat their players. It isn't like hypocritical or or something to just start talking about this now. We no. can start talking about it whenever we want to talk about it. Right. And what always happens here, Josh, is that the people defending this sort of coaching 
you're who, who immediately leap to you're soft. We're in a in a in a, in a participation trophies culture. Young people need to be yelled at in order to get the most out of them. They're so defensive about being confronted about this style of coaching. Like the, there's no willingness to acknowledge that there are better ways to do this, that this isn't a super effective way to coach. Professional athletes, you ask them about like these red ass coaches who treat them like they're five years old, they will uniformly tell you that it doesn't work. And I think the loyalty that a lot of professional athletes have to their college coaches is because they became successful. And correlation is not causation. Draymond Green isn't an NBA star because Tom Izzo reamed him out time and time again when he played for Michigan State. He's an NBA star because Tom Izzo is a good basketball coach and helped make him a better player. And, and Draymond Green also has incredible innate talent and worked incredibly hard to get to where he is. It's also possible that there were certain elements of Izzo's on-court or off-court coaching that did help make Draymond Green sure. a star, whether it was conversations that they had in private Absolutely. about anything. Who, who knows? Um, but yeah, I think the correlation and causation thing is really important. Um, another kind of big conversation that was had culturally in the last couple of years was occasioned by Adrian Peterson, you know, whipping his young child and saying that this is the reason that I was successful is because I was beaten in this way. And it instilled in me, um, you know, the understanding of how to behave how to act knowing that there were consequences for my actions and it gets internalized by people um, and passed on to another generation. And again, I'm not equating what Tom Izzo is doing with physical abuse. That uh, should not be the takeaway from, from what I just said, but I think that there is an analogy to be made about what, what players can sometimes feel like they need. And um, I think that can actually be damaging to get people to think that, and, and these Michigan State players all seem sincere. They're going to pass that on to, you know, when they come become coaches that I've made the NBA because I was treated this way. And it becomes a cultural and social expectation. And that's why it is so valuable to see models of coaches who do it another way, even though I think just because of it, it's so ingrained, not just in sports, but in all of society, that there's a certain kind of cultural picture of what toughness looks like, that it's, I, I'm a little bit pessimistic about changing that, but uh, I, I think it is, nice to see that this isn't the only way to do this. Right. Um, and I think the one thing we haven't mentioned here is the, and I alluded to it earlier, but the power dynamic between coaches in college and their players. I mean, one is that they are there by the graces of the coach. They're not paid. They get their scholarships because the coach says you can have your scholarship. Um, they don't have much agency. They can't go on strike. 
They can't get traded. If they want to leave, they have to sit out a year in most cases. And then there's the racial component. Our friend Joel Anderson tweeted over the weekend, my only real Tom Izzo opinion is that lots of people, including lots of black people, think young black men need to be yelled at to reach their full potential. And that explains the approach of a bunch of charter schools and football teams and the brief proliferation of scared straight type programming in the previous decade. That gentle encouragement and coaxing kids get from private schools and tutors is not often on the table for them. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about the TM Landry um, charter school in Louisiana because of the college admissions scandal. Folks, folks might remember this is a school that is predominantly black that um, the New York Times did a big investigation on and the whole kind of marketing around the school was that these kids from traditionally underserved communities would, by dint of, you know, working maniacally, get accepted into Ivy League schools. Um, And they put together all of these, like, celebratory acceptance videos, and it was this kind of feel-good story. But there was a bunch of like really dark stuff going on, including that they were only being, you know, trained on the ACT instead of actually learning stuff that, um, they, that there are allegations of physical abuse in the school. Um, Aaron Mack, uh, our colleague wrote a, wrote a piece about this. Um, but it was just this, this idea that in order to succeed, that these black kids, rather than actually teaching them stuff, that they were just treated like, you know, like they were in the military um, by like drill sergeants. Um, This idea that in order for them to succeed, they had to be, you know, controlled and yelled at and screamed at and and not like actually treated like people. And then that the outcome the success of getting into this school meant that it was right, that that treatment was correct. It's, it's really, really it, sad. It's sad, and it's mystifying to me how many people sort of quickly buy into this idea. Um, Scott Van Pelt on ESPN did a monologue on his show over the weekend that's gotten a lot of, of, of play. And in it, he said that the gigantic problem in society is that no one is held accountable. People seem to have a real issue when they are held accountable, he said, or if others are too harshly. Uh, We're so concerned with if anyone has had their feelings hurt that we lose sight of this fact. Life has a scoreboard. The world will be difficult. We do nobody any favors when we coddle them to the point that they never hear criticism or never hear a harsh word or have to face any adversity. This is pure and total straw man sophistry. No one is arguing that athletes shouldn't be criticized. No one is arguing that athletes can't even be harshly criticized as a teaching tool. I think what we're arguing is that don't don't look like you're on the point of hitting somebody. Don't scream and embarrass and humiliate an athlete on national television. I mean, these are two different things. I mean, Van Pelt pivoted into like safe spaces and other sort of bullshit right-wing talking points. and it it just it mystifies me. He's a smart guy and like yeah. a thoughtful and sensitive guy, which hearing him say that stuff just made me think more about how pervasive 
this is culturally and, yeah. and socially because he's not somebody who is troglodytic or no. is um, you know a, no, a guy it, like it, on a message board saying that or in my mentions <laughs> players are players are soft or whatever. Um, and the way he pivoted to sort of making this. A teaching moment. He said that the seniors, Matt McQuaid and Cassius Winston, who were the ones that held Izzo back, he said that they've been empowered in a family dynamic that occasionally gets volatile. They are so not empowered, they got no power. They are players who are there again at Izzo's discretion. A family dynamic that occasionally gets volatile? That's just weird, man. I beat my children. It's a family dynamic that occasionally gets volatile. Why do people valorize this behavior? Well, It makes no sense to me. I don't necessarily agree with all of that because I think that these guys have been in the program for a long time. They're clearly respected by oh, yeah. their If anyone teammates. on the team was going to have the ability to tell Tom Izzo to calm down, it would be these guys. Yes. And the the thing that I would just point to rather than arguing that they're not empowered at all, I think that goes too far. I would just say they shouldn't be put in this position. Like it's not it's not their job to control the coach. Um and the other thing that I think people really need to think about when hearing these quotes from the former players is maybe they love him so as much as they do because he was um, because he he treated them badly on certain occasions, and then it felt like they were earning his love like when an abusive he of relationship when he did um, say nice things to them or say that he loved them or hug them. Um, that's part of the the dynamic there. And again, um, I think it's just important to think about. Are there other coaches who are loved by their players who do not act this way? I think the answer to that is yes. And also, Tom Izzo is very, very good at getting his basketball teams to win games. And, you know, Fran McCaffrey at Iowa is a guy who has had some success, but not as much success as um, as Izzo has had. Also a guy who's known to have temper issues. And I feel like his problems, uh, you know, staying in control on the sidelines are talked about more kind of honestly and candidly because it's not shrouded in this kind of gauzy, you know, championship mystique like it is with, with Izzo, where you can't say, McCaffrey does this stuff, but his team has made seven Final Fours. Like, it's it's just, it, it's not part of the conversation. It's never part of the conversation until something happens. I mean, Woody Hayes was a legend until he punched somebody. Bob Knight was, it was the same sort of, you know, Coach Knight gets it done, you know, and look the other way. Uh, Mike Rice at Rutgers. Nobody really knew much about Mike Rice until he started flinging basketballs at a player and it was caught on video. And suddenly that behavior crosses a line. You know, maybe the line needs to be moved in terms of Yeah, that's of what I would acceptable. say because I think Izzo is not in the same no, I don't category think he is as either. those guys. He's like normal right. in a lot of ways. Yes. And so we're having a more of a conversation about normative behavior. Right. Where's the line? Maybe the line should be moved just a hair and maybe coaches should be a little more aware 
of where that line should be. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Before we get to our conversation about Tom Izzo and Michigan State, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about Rob Gronkowski's decision to retire at the age of 29. Our colleague, Steph Stevenson, will be here for our farewell to Gronk. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. On Saturday afternoon in Jacksonville, the LSU Tigers and Maryland Terrapins were tied at 67 with the clock running down. Here is CBS's Ian Eagle on the call. Waters makes his move. Three seconds. Waters to the rim. Layup. equals madness. 69-67. LSU is headed to the Sweet 16. Jubilation in Jacksonville. Joining us now to discuss his call and the theory and practice of broadcasting a game winner is Ian Eagle. He calls NFL and college basketball games for CBS, NBA games on TNT, and the Brooklyn Nets on the Yes Network. Ian, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Good to talk to you again. How you doing? Good. So how does it feel to hear something that you said spontaneously in the moment a couple days later? <laughs> yeah, it, it feels like a blur. You have no idea right after it happens what exactly came out of your mouth. You hope that it was coherent. And obviously the anatomy of a buzzer beater, there's so many factors that go into it. From a play-by-play man standpoint, uh, you've got this mental checklist and you have very little time to actually check the boxes. But the first thing is score and situation, making sure you're on top of that. Secondly, identification, making sure that you're nailing who is doing what. And then end of game scenario, do you bring enthusiasm? Do you put the right words to the pictures in that moment? And can you put an exclamation point at the end of it? Is there something that you leave the viewer with that is somewhat memorable? And literally, you have no time to actually think about these things. But with the reps and with all the years and experience of doing it, uh, you at least get to a point where there is some kind of regimen in your brain in those moments. It kicks in. At a at a moment's notice. Before we get to the question that I think a lot of viewers have in terms of how scripted is what you are doing, do you have a March equals madness in the back of your brain written out in front of you, whatever? Before we get to that, I'd like to ask you more about the the, the anatomy a little bit more because you identified a couple of factors, but there are even more. You have to 
be aware of the player, the situation, the clock. The game might not be over. And listening to that LSU call, I don't know if you, your voice catches there or if something in your brain automatically goes, oh, wait, shit, there's 1.6 seconds left. I better tell everyone this game isn't over. Yeah, there, there is definitely a trigger because – uh, you're living in the moment. You're immersed in the moment. I think as a play-by-play announcer, you want those lines to blur where, yes, of course, you're still doing your job to the best of your ability, but you're also in it. You're at least in your own brain. You're a part of it. You're feeling it with the fans. Uh, you've got different people viewing from different perspectives. You have the LSU fan that's on the edge of their seat because there's a chance that their team is going to advance. You've got the Maryland fan that's on the edge of their seat because the hope is they can get a stop. And then you have the general NCAA fan that has no rooting interest, but over the course of the game uh, may have swayed towards one side or the other, just based on uh, they liked the style of play of this team, or they liked uh, the goggles on on the Maryland squad that uh, Jalen Smith was wearing. You, you don't know. You don't know what connects with people. So uh, as as the broadcaster, I've always viewed it as you have to serve so many different masters. And in that moment, you're just trying to be the conduit. Uh, you're trying your best to provide that energy that you're feeling at the venue. But yeah, you're 100% right uh, in the moment. Not to say that I caught myself. Of course, I knew uh, that there was still time remaining because you're peeking at the clock. You know it's not at a triple zero. So it wasn't the true buzzer beater where it's for the win. And that's also a little bit of a pitfall that play-by-play announcers can get into. When you go for it and you anticipate and you say for the win and there's 0.3 left on the clock, I got to tell you, you, you feel a little bit disappointed in yourself that you didn't time it out right. So that that's, again, years of experience and blending the ability to know how much time is remaining with the words that you want to come out of your mouth in the moment and the hope at the end of it, because you only get one take, you get one shot. There's no redo. There's no, well, let's go back to the studio and uh, we'll, we'll spruce it up a bit. That's it. Uh, there's no editing. That's it. You've got your one chance to provide the soundtrack for that moment forever. All right, let's listen to some of your uh, greatest hits. Let's start with this is from uh, Texas, Arizona State in the 2014 NCAA tournament. Taylor, three seconds. Jumper Holmes off the mark for three. What I like about that one is that it had a nice um, timing with the with what was going on in the arena because you get that crescendo in the audience, you get yep. the buzzer, which is huge. Like you have to be aware of when the buzzer is going to go off because you don't want to be stepping mm-hmm. on the buzzer, and then the band starts playing in your silence. <laughs> so well done on that. Yeah, and and it's funny that that's such a minimalist call because of how it all went down. First of all, I could ke- tell you it, this is going to be a a little play-by-play man's insider tip because it was a busted play, it was a miss shot. Mm-hmm. My first reaction is to call that 
and then make sure that you do have the right guy. I back ended it. You know, I thought it was Ridley. He was a huge man for the University <laughs> of Texas, but there were a lot of moving parts there. That ball could get knocked out of his hands. So I had to wait on it. And again, identification, get it right. Don't speculate. That's one where the play happens and the win happened and you back end it with the name of the player just to make sure it's a fraction of a second. Mm -hmm. But uh, in that moment, you better be right and and don't try to be a hero uh, before you've got the facts straight in your own head. One thing that's challenging now, both for broadcasters and for fans, is that there's so many different triggers for replay review. Yeah, no at, doubt. At the end of game. So did the shot go off before the clock expired? All these different things. And so are you calling the play knowing that it might be reviewed? Or, or can you not have that in your head and you just have to assume that what you see in front of you is the reality? Yeah, I think if you talk to a number of different play-by-play men, they might have different answers to this. For me, uh, my my feeling on it is call the play and know that this play might live on forever. So if you include in that call, they're going to check it. That lives with it. Right. So I, I'd rather put a period on things, wait a beat, and then go back and say... Of course, this is reviewable, but to incorporate that into the call and some play-by-play people might tell you completely the opposite, that you have to, that's your job. Uh, I found in in trying to understand these things and and trying to be a student of this as well, not just mindlessly going about my business, but but having some understanding of what goes into it, uh, I found that I think it's better to make your call and let that live and wait a beat, and then provide the the facts behind it. All right, let's listen actually to a compare and contrast. And I thought this was really interesting. So folks will recognize uh, what moment this was when they hear uh, the call. But let's listen to uh, Mike Breen's version first. Should the Spurs foul? Should Miami go for the three right away? Just attack the basket. James catches, puts up a three, won't go, rebound Bosch, back out to Allen, his three-pointer, bang, tie game with five seconds remaining. All right, Ian, let's listen to yours now, and this, again, was on the radio. Trouble down to 15 seconds to play. Chalmers has made big shots in his career. Chalmers swings it, James, a three, no good, rebound Bosch has got it, clears, Allen fired, oh! So both you and Breen chose to have white stripes in the background, which I thought was an interesting choice. Um, (laughs) But the thing that I found so interesting about this was that Mike Breen's call is so ingrained because it was on television that I thought your call was great, but it actually sounds weird because I was so used to Breen's call. How does it seem to you? I assume you've heard... Uh, Mike Breen's call many times yourself. Yeah, just to give you additional insight, uh, that that call that you heard from me was the international TV feed. Oh, sorry, TV, not yeah. radio. 
and I was doing it from a studio in Secaucus, New Jersey. <laughs> As one does. Yes, yes. I mean, that's that's the dream that, that every young broadcaster has, to to one day get to the biggest stage and call a game winner from beautiful downtown Secaucus, New Jersey. Yeah, that's uh, that's just circumstances. Uh, we we did the entire series that year from from the studio, and it's obviously a, a completely different approach. Uh, you're just trying to generate as much energy as you can in an antiseptic setting. Uh, they're feeding crowd noise, white stripes into your headset, but oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, you're you're not there. Uh, you're not you're not feeling the the vibration of the audience and the fans and the music. Uh, it it's all it's all self motivated. Do you compare yourself when another guy calls the same play? Do you listen to it and think about the choices that were made, or is that not a productive exercise? It actually is a productive exercise, and if you're not trying to improve and polish your skills, then um, you're not approaching it the right way. I don't know if you do it right away. Uh, it, I find in, in trying to assess your own work, it's usually better if there's a little time in between the event and when you look back or listen back. Uh, it's too fresh in your mind if you do it right away. If you rush home and play back the entire game, you remember why you said what you said. You remember what you were thinking when you said it. If you let a little time pass by, and it could be a month, it could be three months, it could be six months. I've gone back a year later to listen to stuff. It's not as much in your conscious brain at that point. You're watching it with a completely different perspective almost as a viewer, it's, it's a little bit of an out-of-body experience. You know it's you, you know that uh, there are certain calls that you'll remember, but it's a much more productive exercise because you can view it from a perspective of really understanding uh, where things could be better or um, how satisfied you are with a particular call. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about the evolution of the game ending call. Let's listen to some older clips and see how things have evolved and when you think things started to change and how. So this is from 1992. It's James Forrest of Georgia Tech hitting a game winner in the tournament, and it's Al McGuire on the call. You think Dick Stockton was like, shut up. This is, this is my moment. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there is a give and take there, uh, obviously, between play-by-play -play announcer and color commentator. Uh, I think there's usually an understanding of where the line is drawn. But I also think there's part of the, the joy that comes through. And as long as you're in it together, then... The audience, or the the TV viewer, or radio viewer, uh, can can be along for the ride. If you're fighting one another on the call, then you got a problem. You know that's just bedlam, and nobody 
benefits in that situation. Well, you bribed the I, guy. You bribed the guys in the truck to cut Jim Spinarkel's mic in those moments. <laughs> yeah. Wait a second. Where, where are you getting that information? That's uh, that's confidential, classified. You know, Jim and I have have worked together for so many years, and there's there's a certain rhythm of his voice and rhythm to my voice that he knows when I'm wrapping up a sentence or when I'm taking a pause and vice versa. So it's rare that you're going to hear either of us step on the other one. And that's what it's called. Like, did you step on the call? I think local NFL radio, it became a thing. Once those calls started getting replayed over and over again, you'd hear a lot of color commentators jump in. They wanted to be a part of it. They wanted to be, I don't even know if it was conscious, if it was just a part, part of the, the whole, uh, feel for, for local NFL radio that the, local fans loved it if it's incoherent if it's just words garbled then nobody benefits but in that case al mcguire al was a one-of-a-kind person and i don't think he was doing anything out of malice it was just real unadulterated joy that came out of his mouth that uh, this play had just happened that so kind of stuff uh, to me that, that felt that worked and, and that kind of stuff didn't always happen in the in the 60s in the 70s i mean there was a, a change in what was sort of acceptable i think in these kinds of calls yeah you know i think it's it's an evolving process but we have gotten to a point now because you can now see how fans react and that there is so much passion involved. And if you're downplaying or if you're not being authentic in the moment, then I think you're, you're not doing right by the viewers and the listeners. Uh, they, they bring so much of, of that energy. And oftentimes, as we know, that that's what the, the word is based on, fanatical there's a fine line. Uh, look, you, you still have to do your job. It can't sound like someone that you just pulled from the stands and put a headset on and said, hey, just cover the last five seconds here and just react any way that you want. And we'll go with that as, as the final call for history. There, there still has to be a delineation that uh, you are the professional in that situation and you still conduct yourself in a professional manner. But if if you're not bringing uh, that vibe, uh, then uh, I don't know if you're you're seeing the big picture in all of this. All right, let's end with what's at the very least the most famous college basketball play of the last thirty years, if not ever, which is the Christian Leitner shot against Kentucky. Getting better shooting range. There's the pass to Leitner. Puts it up. I mean, Vern Lundquist just let the crowd take over, and that's a conscious decision. Absolutely conscious decision. If you talk to Vern about it, I think he he could walk you through the steps of it. I do think Vern, in later years, uh, as things changed, probably would give you a saying and make some verbal wordplay that that would put a little period on things. But it was perfect. <laughs> there was there was nothing more that needed to be said. You could hear the crowd. You know what happened. 
it, it felt like it was the finality of that. And sometimes less is more. I, I do believe that. There was a story by Reeves Weideman in The New Yorker about announcers and buzzer beaters. And Vern said he wasn't particularly proud of his call on that shot. He said, I just channeled my inner Marv Albert and screamed yes. I think Vern's being a little bit hard on himself there. That was pretty pretty perfect. Yeah. And look, I, I think to say there's a a general philosophy that you have to follow every time around is is not a fair statement. Uh, different situations call for different reactions. And the one thing that I, I would want to articulate in this moment for every announcer, you've just done an entire game or you've prepared for, in some cases, four games in that one day or two games in that one night. And you don't know uh, how everything transpired prior to that. But all you're left with is this, this little morsel of history. So there is some pressure that you feel. And those that can handle that and massage it and manage it and not overthink it are usually the ones that come away feeling good about things. But that's a great example of what a broadcaster may have felt in the moment and what the public may have felt could be two completely different answers. You know, the fact that Vern said, ah, that could have been better. And most people listen and say, that was perfect. There's nothing more that needed to be said. Sometimes you do need to say more and you do need to provide a little more context and color. And because, you know, we're in a business now where, uh, these calls are manipulated and used in, in different forms. Uh, for announcers, they think that maybe this is their shot to, to be a part of history. But you better be true to yourself. Don't go outside of who you are. Don't try to be something that you're not. Uh, if it's inauthentic, then people will figure it out. And over time, uh, the reaction will not be as, as positive. All right, Ian, you're going to be in Kansas City for the Sweet 16. Uh, North Carolina, Auburn, and Kentucky, Houston are going to be there. I imagine if Tyler Hero makes a game-winning shot for Kentucky, the line might write itself. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing what you come up with. Hey, look, uh, I'm I'm not that proud. Uh, I'm, I'm, I could be Casey Kasem in this moment. I'll take requests. <laughs> uh, I was thinking about Jared Harper for... Uh, Auburn, maybe like a Harper's fairy tale or something, but you know, just, just, you know, just putting it out there. You've got you understand this. This has to play to the masses. You understand <laughs> that, yes? You've got five days to figure something out, Ian. We know you'll come <laughs> up with you. something. Thank Almost you. as good as Josh. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, anytime, guys. Great talking to you. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. 
we became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls and one game-winning call that we did not get to in our segment with Ian Eagle was the following from the man, Bill Raftery. Seven seconds to go. Three-pointer. Double order. That was uh, Sienna's Ronald Moore in double overtime against Ohio State in the NCAA tournament. That's what you get when, like Moore did, you make two buzzer-beating shots in the same game. The rare onions, double order. You had mentioned that Reeves-Wiedemann piece in The New Yorker. And in that one, Vern Lundquist is asked about his favorite game-ending call. And he mentions uh, Vin Scully calling Kirk Gibson's walk-off homer in the 1988 World Series. And all Scully said was, like, it's out of here. And then he let the crowd noise take over for, like, a minute. Um, And then Scully said, in a year of the improbable, the impossible has happened. And as Wiedemann writes it, as Raftery walked away, Lundquist said that that call was an ideal to emulate. It's the subtlety of it. There's a bit of poetry, he said, glancing in Raftery's direction. It's not Onion's double order. So a few things are. Stefan, what is your Onion's double order? According to the Oxford English Dictionary and Merriam-Webster, the first date of usage for the boxing and then brain injury term punch drunk is 1912. It was the lead of a story datelined New York on June 29th, and it appeared in newspapers across the country. Punch drunk through the first round and floundering around like a great helpless calf, his mouth and nose shedding blood in a thick stream, even flattened on the floor for the full count of nine. Al Palzer, the Iowa farmhand, recovered and battered Bombardier Wells, heavyweight champion of England, into unconsciousness in the third round at Madison Square Garden last night. Now that is a lead. But it turns out it wasn't the first use of the term punch drunk, which the OED defines as originally of a boxer, dazed or stupefied from taking punches to the head, later also medicine, designating a neurological syndrome characterized by weakness of the legs and unsteadiness of gait, tremor, impaired speech, and slowness of thinking, seen chiefly in boxers, often after retirement, and attributed to repeated head injury suffering from this syndrome. I discovered that punch drunk was used six months earlier in a dispatch about a December 27th, 1911 fight between Carl Morris and Tom Kennedy at the Empire Athletic Club in New York. Morris won a second round decision. At the finish, he had Kennedy punch drunk and Tom's face was masked with blood. Not nearly as colorful as the earlier use, but this story had plenty of other noteworthy information. Let's start with the headline on it in the Times of Munster, Indiana. Carl Morris whips Kennedy, hope on, white race. The lead is as follows. Hope on, O white race. Carl Morris, maybe it yet, though probably not soon. I'm showing the headline to Josh right now. It says Carl Morris whips Kennedy, hope on white race. Hope on white race. I can confirm. 
Though he was believed to be part Cherokee, the 27-year-old Morris was dubbed the Oklahoma White Hope and later the original White Hope. The hope, of course, was that a white boxer would rise up and defeat the African-American champion Jack Johnson, who had won the heavyweight title in 1908. The nation was obsessed with white hopes. Eleven boxers showed up for a White Hope tournament in New York in 1911. Two years later, the winner of that event, Al Palzer, knocked out Luther McCarty in 18 rounds to win the World White Heavyweight Championship. Imagine imagine finishing last in the White Hope tournament. (laughs) No hope. After Johnson pummeled James Jeffries in 1910 to retain his crown, riots broke out across the country and mobs attacked African-American communities. Carl Morris was working as a locomotive engineer in Sepulpa, Oklahoma at the time. According to a fascinating bio by Patrick Salkeld on the website Explore Oklahoma History, when Morris heard about Johnson's win, he reportedly told a co-worker, then I'll quit this job right here. I'm going to be a fighter and whip the Negro sure. Morris's big chance came in September 1911 against fireman Jim Flynn at Madison Square Garden. I expect to win by a knockout, and by tomorrow, the people will claim I am the real white hope to go against Jack Johnson, Morris supposedly wrote in a telegram. He lost in 10 brutal rounds. It was his first defeat. According to Salkel, the newspapers reported that Flynn beat Morris to a pulp in the bloodiest fight seen in this city. One reporter wrote, Both of his eyes were closed, his nose was broken, his lips were slashed, and he received so many blows on the right side of the head that it swelled to the size of a small pumpkin. Three months later, Morris was back in the ring. He beat Tom Kennedy in New York, and writers resumed hoping that he was the white guy to take out Johnson. The last line in the Munster, Indiana newspaper story was this, P.S., beware John A. Johnson, be very ware. Morris never got the chance, but he did fight for another decade, including three straight losses to Jack Dempsey and retired with a career record of 52, 15, and 2. Jack Johnson finally lost the title in 1915 to Jess Willard, who had beaten Carl Morris at the Garden two years later. Josh, what's your onions double order? So you may or may not have noticed that young Canadians are taking over tennis at Indian Wells, the biggest tournament of the year outside the Grand Slams. 18-year-old Bianca Andreescu won the title, beating Angelique Kerber in the final, as the New York Times' Christopher Clary reported. Andreescu's parents moved from Romania to Canada in 1994. We arrived in Canada with two suitcases, and that's all her father said. We had a great first impression when we arrived, having come from a former communist country. We wanted to go to Canada and start a new life and have a better future for any kids we might have. On the men's side, 19-year-old Denis Shapovalov is the world's highest-ranked teenager. He's number 23 in the world. Shapovalov was born in Israel, the parents who fled the Soviet Union as it was collapsing. The family moved to Canada when he was a baby the world's second highest ranked teenager and a guy who looks like he might be the best player in the world someday soon is the mellifluously named 18-year-old Felix Auger Aliassim, whose father immigrated to Canada from Togo and married a French-Canadian woman. On a different kind of court, there's 18-year-old R.J. Barrett, the Duke star we talked about earlier. 
He's going to be a top three pick in the NBA draft. Barrett was born in Canada to parents of Jamaican heritage. His mother's sister represented Jamaica in the Olympics. His father was the son of Jamaican immigrants, is the son of Jamaican immigrants. Uh, Barrett then lived in France as a child after being born in Canada. His dad was there playing professional basketball. There's also 18-year-old soccer player Alfonso Davies, who just scored in a league game for Bayern Munich after previously becoming the first player from any country who's born in the 2000s to score in a major international soccer tournament. Davies was born in a refugee camp in Ghana to Liberian parents who were displaced during that country's civil war. They came to Canada as refugees when Davies was five years old. The point of this afterball is to warn all of you that uh, Canadian super jocks are on the rise and that they will destroy us all. The other point of this afterball is to note the role that immigration plays in all of these stories. Uh, according to Statistics Canada, as of 2011, Canada's foreign-born population was just shy of 7 million people, 6,775,800, of the total population. That's the highest proportion among G8 countries. If you also look at net migration from 2007 to 2012, Canada is really high up there. Net migration of 1,175,863 in that five-year stretch, uh, 33.84 net migration per 1,000 inhabitants. That's 14th uh, among all nations behind Oman, Lebanon, Qatar, Kuwait, Luxembourg, South Sudan, Singapore, Macau, Switzerland, Norway, UAE, Australia, and of course, Curaçao. Uh, the U.S., way further down the list, uh, the net migration is like 15 per 1,000 inhabitants. So uh, the thing that's striking to me about this is that if you look at the 20th century list of greatest Canadian athletes, they're f of male athletes, the top three are all hockey players, Gretzky, Howe, or five of 10 are hockey players. There's a sixth who's a speed skater. We would not want to forget Gaetan Boucher. Um, and I think immigration is the explanation for why the greatest Canadian athletes of the 21st century are not all going to be hockey players. Um, still going to be a lot of hockey players. Still going to be a lot of hockey players. But um, I also found this 2018 poll um, from the Angus Reid Institute that, uh, according to this poll, two-thirds of Canadians agreed that illegal immigration to Canada is a crisis and that Canada's ability to handle the situation is at a limit. So I do not want to idealize the situation for immigrants in Canada or to predict that immigration in Canada is going to be sustained at these levels. Um, this could, in fact, turn out to be a generation of Canadians and of Canadian athletes who are, uh, you know, coming of age at a particular time uh, uh, that will not be replicated. I hope not. But uh, the Canadian super jocks, keep your eye out for them, Stefan. Felix Ajay Aliassime. Kid is very, very, very good. good. Yeah. Alfonso yeah. Davies is also very, very good. Uh, I'll take your word for it. When FIFA expands the World Cup to 48, Canada, which traditionally sucks in the calf <laughs> we'll have a chance to qualify that is our show for today congratulations to canada also in canada the u.s and mexico host the world cup then they'll probably have a right, chance right. to qualify too they'll be in 
Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, I am going to speculate that you might want to listen to a little bit more. Hang up and listen. Stick around. In our bonus segment this week, Stefan and I are going to be joined by Seth Stevenson. We're going to talk about a gronking to remember the career of the legend, Rob Gronkowski, who just retired from the NFL. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. Sign up at slate.com slash plus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.